Give the gift of liberty this holiday season by becoming a Cato sponsor on behalf of a friend or loved one. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor, and if you support our work with $1,000 or more, I'll give you or your designee a shout-out on the Cato Daily Podcast. Help us advance the values of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace by becoming a Cato Podcast sponsor. That website again, cato.org slash podcast sponsor. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 3rd, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The fight over judicial nominations seems fairly new, but the key turning point was much earlier, according to Ilya Shapiro, author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. We discussed the long history of judicial nomination fights and the relatively recent innovation, if you want to call it that, of holding hearings over potential Supreme Court justices. If there were a version of Schoolhouse Rock for these struggles over whether or not prospective justices on the U.S. Supreme Court were to be produced, you would think, hey, this person is qualified. We put this person to a vote. Everyone agrees this person is qualified. And then they sit on the court and they tell us what the Constitution means and they otherwise adjudicate cases. What's wrong with that? Well, uh, despite John Roberts's protestations at his confirmation hearing, judges aren't simply uh, computers or even umpires just mechanically applying uh, certain rules. And in fact, the umpire analogy might work because different umpires have different strike zones and, and all the rest of it before we get too technologically advanced and, and have robot umpires. Uh, so we're dealing with people. And even more, we're dealing with politicians, because after all, the president is a politician. The senators who advise and consent are politicians. And so it turns out politics has always been a great factor in the judicial confirmation process, going back not just to Clarence Thomas or Robert Bork or even LBJ with the the failed elevation of Abe Fortas, 1968, I I consider to be the pivot point for the the modern uh, uh, judicial nomination battles, but all the way going back to George Washington. Uh, Different people's views on the power of the new federal republic and the new government it created, and the judiciary. Um, You know, John Marshall uh, uh, establishing a a powerful court and Jefferson trying to battle with him and appoint people that would oppose him to have, you know, differing uh, conceptions of, of this new central power. About half of our presidents have had trouble appointing justices uh, for various reasons. The the overall confirmation rate is about 77%, although um, it might be uh, uh, unsurprising that when the Senate and the White House are controlled by the same party, that confirmation rate's 90%, and when it's different parties, we're south of 60%. So again, politics has always been important. This, this isn't something that, uh, you know, uh, is is newly uh, created or invented by uh, by the moderns. What's different now, however, is that you have, uh, as the federal government uh, has gained all of this centralized power in Washington, and therefore the Supreme Court as well has become ever more powerful, you have divergent interpretive theories that map onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted and polarized than they've been since at least the Civil War. Because this is such a a long-spanning book in terms of time, uh, what about the 17th Amendment? 
does that change anything? Well, the 17th Amendment about the direct election of senators rather than having the state legislatures uh, choose them, most constitutional amendments were enacted not with Congress breaking new ground or being ahead of the curve, but Congress is a lagging indicator. And so when popular opinion in the country has already shifted past a critical point, at that point, Congress says, oh, well, we better get ahead of this and craft our own amendment and get that ratified rather than who knows what the people will do and you know, constitutional convent- amendment conventions. We don't want to do that. And so the 17th Amendment is a similar thing. Most states had already moved to effectively ratifying uh, on non-binding plebiscites for for the uh, senators, at least for the primaries, and, and most states were, were one-party states, uh, relatively speaking, in the early 20th century. Uh, and, and definitely that's the direction where they were going. I think without the 17th Amendment, uh, all or nearly all states would have moved to direct elections uh, within you know, 10, 15 years. So not a likely large impact. In, in other words, yes. You know, a lot of libertarians think that, you know, removing the 17th Amendment would, uh, you know, usher in a great era of federalism or limited government or what have you. But for practical purposes, uh, I, d- I just don't I just don't see it. Well, I'll just hope more quietly then. In the modern, uh, it, you say you point to uh, LBJ in attempting to uh, get Abe Fortas onto the court uh, was a turning point. What, practically speaking, changed about uh, not just the public's understanding, but the Senate and the president's understanding of this process? Well, it, it ended a, a long period uh, where um, judicial no- justice nominees, Supreme Court nominees, were, were simply confirmed. I mean, there was a tumultuous period uh, in our history from Andrew Jackson to Abraham Lincoln. Only eight of 21 nominees were confirmed. From the late 1880s until 1968, I think all but one were confirmed. Um, in 1968, obviously, a, 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 an inflection point in American cultural and political history, in addition to judicial uh, history, uh, LBJ was a lame duck. Uh, you know, he was Vietnam and, and uh, very, you know, uh, uh, civil rights uh, uh, protests and, and so forth. And he wanted to elevate uh, his close advisor. He was not only a justice already, Abe Fortas, but he was advising uh, LBJ on, you know, where to bomb in Vietnam. I mean, these sorts of things. Uh, But in addition, he had various uh, uh, financial ethics problems, had bipartisan opposition in the Senate. And he's sometimes considered to be the first filibustered uh, uh, Supreme Court nominee. I don't think that's quite right because he never even had a majority of support in the Senate. And in any event, it was bipartisan opposition. This is not kind of a parallel to what we've seen uh, uh, lately. But anyway, it's with that point. And then Nixon got to appoint the successor to Earl Warren as chief justice, a very important chief justice who, um, you know, people called him a, a liberal activist and certainly uh, was pivotal not just in desegregation, Brown versus Board, but a revolution in criminal procedure in all sorts of areas that led to impeach Earl Warren uh, uh, bumper stickers and and billboards uh, and and made the court seem much more political than it had been. Uh, well, certainly since the New Deal, but in the modern era with TV and Richard Nixon actually running against the court, saying that he would appoint strict constructionists, and so for the first time in the 60s and beyond, judicial philosophy, uh, as opposed to a particular issue, as opposed to regional balance or certain other things, became 
a primary factor in Supreme Court battles. And then Nixon actually had two nominees rejected, and and away we went. Uh, I mean, not every president uh, had had trouble necessarily, but you know, Roe v. Wade came along uh, pretty clearly. Robert Bork and the birth of originalism, originally original intent, then quickly becoming original public meaning, uh, originalism, and the response to that sort of. Uh, liberal activism. So, so the the root of our modern wars over judicial philosophy, I think, can be traced to the late sixties. When I imagine a president sitting down with a high court nominee, I'm I I always imagine them going, "Okay, but you really got to tell me how would you rule on these three super important issues?" And of course, abortion has to be in there somewhere, but. Is it correct to say these conversations do not occur that way? They haven't occurred in the last few decades. I mean, it, it could very well be that uh, you know in the 19th century those conversations were had, but uh, the the Twitter records from that time have been lost uh, to, to history, and uh, there's no paper records, and there weren't hearings for that matter. See, part of the reason why these conversations don't happen is because the senators could then ask the nominee, "Did anyone ask you how you would vote on this?" or whether uh, in, in written questions or, or at, the, at the hearings. And this is an interesting point. The hearings started, the public hearings for nominees started in 1916, so 100 and, almost 150 years as after the birth of the Republic. And it was because we had the first Jewish nominee, which was very controversial, Louis Brandeis, but also, and perhaps even more so, because Brandeis was a crusading progressive, uh, you know, part of the, very much part of Woodrow Wilson's ethos of uh, government administration and technocrats and, and the administrative state and, and all of that, very controversial. Um, and so they had these hearings, the, the longest confirmation that we've had to this point, more than four months, ultimately confirmed by a slightly uh, larger margin than the most recent ones, but still. Uh, although at the time it, it was seen as unseemly for the nominee to testify himself. So it was just others testifying for uh, and against him. And then after Brandeis was confirmed, one of his new colleagues, Charles Evans Hughes, resigned to run against Woodrow Wilson in that false presidential election. So if you think that 2020 or 2016 were big in terms of the interrelationship of presidential politics and Supreme Court nominations, I'll see that and raise you 1916. <laughs> Louis Brandeis, famous Louisvillian, I might add. <laughs> and by the way, to harp more on, on Woodrow Wilson, one of my least favorite presidents, uh, even though he was a great professor of jurisprudence and a great scholar, that former president of Princeton, of course, and, and governor of New Jersey, but knew what he was doing, knew what he wanted out of the court. Uh, but even he had misfires in terms of his nomination. So yeah, he appointed the Ur progressive Brandeis very much in line with what he wanted to do, but also appointed James Clark McReynolds, uh, who became known as one of the four horsemen, the, the opponents to the New Deal and to kind of prog more progressive regulation 20 years later. Um, it seems that he agreed with Woodrow Wilson on one important issue, antitrust, uh, and I guess on racial bigotry as well, but on everything else, uh, was against the growth of federal power was, you know, all of these different things. And, and this is Woodrow Wilson. This is, you know, a very trained, sophisticated lawyer and political scientist. And then his third nominee was, uh, was a cipher. Uh, John Hessen Clark served a short time, didn't leave a mark on the court. And so it's not, uh, you know, Republican presidents of the last 50 years are not the only ones who kind of didn't get what they wanted necessarily out of the court. So uh, the now sort of famous Washington Post article by Alexandra Petrie from uh, April of this year 
Uh, the headline is, Sitting on a Throne of Skulls, Mitch McConnell Confirms His 8,999th Judge. Uh, it's a very funny article. Everyone should read it. But of course, this is a joke about the fact that Mitch McConnell has confirmed a lot of judges during the uh, Trump years. Uh, he has said recently, we're going to clean the plate on judges. That is to say, the Senate will continue confirming judges during the lame duck session. And has. We're up to 225. As we speak, I think they're they're confirming and, and filing cloture motes, uh, votes and, and, and things like that. So what, what does that mean for the bench when we get to uh, trying to have these judges who are at the district level, going to the circuit level, going to potentially the U.S. Supreme Court? How does that change the calculus? Yeah, we're, we're at 225 as we speak. That'll tick up uh, by the end of the day, I'm sure, even even more by the end of the week. By the lame, the end of the lame duck, we'll probably have you know 235 or so, uh, which uh, approaches. I think 235 is actually the number that Richard Nixon had in his not two full terms, but uh, six years. I guess he had uh, a little more than that. Uh, uh, already, Trump has had 53 circuit judges. That could tick up. Uh, he's, he's nominated people to the other vacancies. Obama had 55 in two terms. So yes, this has clearly been uh, a priority uh, of the administration of Mitch McConnell, a Senate majority leader. You just want to talk about Kentuckians. I, I recognize this, Scott Caleb. Um, <laughs> but it means that uh, upwards of a third of circuit judges and over a quarter of all federal Article Three judges uh, have now been appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, that's a huge impact, probably the most successful part of this uh, one-term administration, um, certainly in the domestic sphere. And indeed, uh, judicial nominations, I think, are the most important part, the most powerful part of a presidential administration, certainly in, in domestic politics, because legislation can be uh, reversed or sunset. Uh, regulations can be rescinded. Guidance uh, documents aren't worth uh, paper or pixels they're written on, but judges are for life, serving decades past uh, the president who nominated them, the, the, the president's departure from the White House. You know, Scalia served nearly 30 years on the high court as uh, President Reagan's bridge to the 21st century. Um, in 2016, there was a very important ruling made by a district judge in California on nonprofit donor disclosures, an issue near and dear to uh, uh, Cato's heart, certainly, uh, made by a judge nominated by Lyndon Johnson. When I give this talk about these issues to law students, that might as well be Andrew Johnson, ancient history. So yeah, this, this, mean, this is significant. Um, and that the type and the nature, in addition to the number of judges being confirmed, kind of rock-ribbed originalists and textualists and youthful ones at that, um, uh, by far make this uh, certainly not just Donald Trump's legacy, but Mitch McConnell's as well. What do court nominations look like? Of course, we're still awaiting uh, to the U.S. Senate outcome in terms of whether it will be 50-50 or uh, 52-48, which seems uh, uh, potential. Uh, it seems there's potential for that. Uh, what, how, what do we expect to see from Biden nominations to fill out uh, various circuits or uh, to the Supreme Court should someone step down or die? It's rare uh, to have a new incoming president not also control both houses of Congress. 
the last time that happened was George H.W. Bush uh, when he started in 89. The last Democratic president who didn't control it was, uh, I think, uh, 1888, Grover Cleveland, something like that. Um, so this, this, you know, and we haven't had a Supreme Court confirmation process with the Senate controlled by the opposing party since Clarence Thomas nearly 30 years ago. Merrick Garland, which of course, famously in- implicates Joe Biden again. It does. I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal at the beginning of September talking about Biden's long history as Judiciary Committee chairman with with Thomas, uh, with 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 others, with Bork. He was the chairman at, at that time as well. Um, you know, Garland, of course, the reason he was blocked was because the opposing party controlled uh, the Senate. And that's not unusual. In presidential election years, I gave you the stat overall, but in presidential election years, the confirmation rate when they're divi- when it's divided government is 20 percent versus, uh, I think we're at 90 percent as well for, for united government. So, But anyway, um, so if uh, Justice Breyer, who's the oldest uh, justice, decides to retire uh, next year, say in, in 2021, presumably Biden would have to moderate a little bit. And so he would um, you know, he said he wants to appoint uh, an African-American woman. Presumably he'll choose one of them, but presumably it won't be someone as controversial as, say, Stacey Abrams. It might be, you know, might be someone else. For lower court nominees, it means there would be true fights over uh, those who are con- who, who would be thought of as being able to do a lot of damage in terms of progressive legal theory. So either the most radical ones or the smartest ones, for that matter, would uh, would run into some uh, opposition. And uh, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, Mitt Romney, whoever the the, the median uh, Senate votes would be all the more powerful. And if uh, if President Biden could get their votes, then that's the whole ballgame. You've cited a lot of statistics here about uh, these confirmation battles and how uh, just by its nature, it's a it's a politi- highly political thing. How can people get access to all the stats you just cited? Well, you can go to supremedisorder.com, which also provides links for you to buy the book in multiple versions, of course, upstairs, downstairs, you know, read it twice. Uh, But you can also download for free a 20-page statistical historical appendix of all Supreme Court nominations and even getting into some of the lower court battles that we've seen in the last couple of decades. Ilya Shapiro is author of Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations, and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 